Okay, well, God's forgiveness of sin is the greatest blessing a person can receive. That's, that's my thesis statement. That's what I wanted to talk about this morning. God's forgiveness. It's the morning dew on spring alfalfa. It's God's magnum opus for all of creation. It's the story from A to Z of all and all of Scripture tells it over and over. And it was purchased for believers at Calvary when Jesus went to the cross for us, believers, for our sin, substituting His righteousness for our sin and thus redeeming what once was lost. And not for the moment or just until the next sin or sinful thought, but for all eternity. This is good news. This is the gospel. I utilize Charles Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, liberally in preparing this. He's become a favorite smart guy, preacher guy, theologian. He lived in the latter part of the 19th century in England, Englishman, and he preached sometimes six, seven, eight sermons a week at, what was it, Tim, Tabernacle Church? The Tabernacle, I think that's what they called it, in inner city London, filled. It had like multiple tiers back in the old days, filled, filled, even during the week. It had night sermons and all this. And he has a repository of sermons, books and books and books, and you can go purchase them. They're online. They're all of, of that kind of availability in this age and day. That He's just wonderful, godly preaching. I have a, even a morning devotion that I read rely on. But here's a a quote that I wanted to read that came out of a book he titled book series of books called The Treasury of David. There's Psalms 1 through 150 commentary. I see people nodding their heads. I'd never heard of it. And two pastor types mentioned it to me when I asked them to pray for me. And uh uh, Professor Pete Sharpity loaned me his copy. Thank you, Pete. And with Psalm 32 in it, and it is wow! It's amazing. And at the at the end of each Psalm, it gives you all this exegesis and observation, and ooh, it goes over my head and beyond a lot of it. And then you get to the end, and it's like one through maybe ten or twelve, and it's called hints for pastors for in their sermon preparation. And it wasn't until a couple of days ago I read the fine print under the hints for pastors. He, uh, Spurgeon makes an apology to real pastors, <laughs> learned pastors who went to school and all that. He says, this is really for the lay pastor who is who is light in his attainments. <laughs> I think he put what you know, it makes me think like, you know, and I thought, man, brother, you were talking to me a hundred years ago. I mean, those hints were really, they were just great to to read. But here's the quote. Christ's atonement is the propitiation, the covering, the making an end of an end to sin. I like this for two reasons. First one, Bryce talked about choosing a favorite verse or even a word to reflect or meditate upon for the year. This was in around New Year's time in a sermon. My word for the year is propitiation. 
If you look up in just a regular secular dictionary, it says the act of propitiating a God. I love it when they use the word you're trying to define. (laughs) It's like, what's the definition for run? Uh, uh, Run is described as running away. Anyway, propitiating. But the act of appeasing a God, the act of making angry God happy. Think of all the the, um, Roman and Greek God kind of kind of a idea in that but of course in the case of the believer it is the act of appeasing the god of creation i chose the word while reading j.i packer's book knowing god and why i highly recommend that book if you haven't read it believers to you young people to you old people new believers mature believers it's it's great it's a good one. J.I. Packer, Knowing God, written in the 70s, as timely today as it was then. My second reason for liking the quote was that um, Spurgeon uses the singular form of the word sin instead of saying sins. The human condition has a big problem, and its name is sin, not sins. It only took one to get us in the mess we find ourselves in. Now, This brings us to today's text, Psalm 32. It's a long one, I know. It's a not-so-secret but long-held one of farmers and occasional preachers who don't know what to say. You just read a long passage of Scripture and let God go to work. Probably, though, all of us are familiar with Psalm number 1. It reads, the first chapter, first verse. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Familiar, right? The most famous of Psalms, number one, is the result of what is taught in Psalm 32. Augustine, or some say St. Augustine, the early church father and profound theologian, prolific author who lived his life in North Africa during the Roman Empire, late 4th century, died in early 5th century, wrote, and I quote, the beginning of knowledge is to know oneself to be a sinner. If you've read about Augustine or read him, then you'll recognize how much this says about his journey of faith and how true it is for us also as believers. Psalm 32 is written by David, and I'll have more to say about this later. We know well the story of David, and we also know well that sin is a big part of his life story. David lived his life, of course, in Israel, ancient Israel, that small Middle East country there today on the far east side of the Mediterranean. Some of you might have heard that last fall, Sidney and I had the wonderful blessing to travel to the eastern Mediterranean on a cruise ship. And some call it following the footsteps of Paul, but it was in reverse. We started in Rome. We went to a few spots in in um, Greece, including Athens, where Paul preached on March Hill. Then we jumped across to Ephesus. 
where Paul preached there and John was there and everybody was there. That was just amazing. And then um, we got on our little boat and headed off to Israel and we were up into Galilee and then down in Jerusalem. We visited Bethlehem, the city that um, David was supposed to have been born in and shepherded around. We were up in the Galilee area. When I've been in Israel and we're out in those rural areas, I, I really get a sense of homeness. It's if you've been there, you know Israel's fairly barren because it's desert. It's it's hillier overall than Arizona. It doesn't have the high mountains, but it's very very deserty. In fact, I wondered how David shepherded any sheep. What did they eat on some of these hills outside of Bethlehem? But times change and rain cycles change. I get that. But this shepherd boy, and we heard, I think, some preaching at Christmas that shepherds were low on the social status in Israel at that time, compared with thieves, if you remember. But this shepherd boy, low on the social status, I, 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 have, I can relate to him in his agrarian lifestyle out on those hills. When we were walking around the Sea of Galilee in an area that Jesus could have preached the Sermon on the Mount and you look across these hills and it's a little grassier, rainier up there. And it um, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. I could see David there with his sheep. I could imagine Jesus and the twelve come walking over a hill. It, it's, it was a beautiful time. But it does make, when you read in here and, he, and some of David's words, it does bring a certain vividness that maybe I didn't have before. Verses 1 and 2 and 32 say, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. We can see immediately the psalm presupposes, and throughout the psalm, not a sinless man, but a man whose sin is forgiven. Three terms are employed to designate the dimensions of human evil. Transgression, sin, iniquity. Transgression reflects rebellion against God. Uh, the second word sin is the, the most general word that the Bible uses. And three, iniquity indicates distortion. I think I would add perversion, criminality, or the absence of respect for the divine will. And all of these, my friends, I once was. Transgression, sin, iniquity, an unholy trinity of hell that took the holy trinity of heaven to deal with. But now, we along with David sing the new song that's found in verse 11. A new song because his sin has been covered and is no longer counted against him. He calls this new state, this new reality, blessed. But I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. Blessed. I don't think I've made, given much of a definition there. All of us who've been in the church long reading the Bible, we, we have some notion, some idea of goodness, God's favor. Yeah, I looked at biblical dictionaries, secular dictionaries. Here was what they said. Made holy or consecrated. Okay. Divinely or supremely favored. I like that too. Receiving God's provision. An extension of His grace. 
Okay. Well, anyway, let's look at verses 3 and 4. Our psalmist now describes the agonies he experienced in the unrepentant state. He takes a step back here and shows us, tells us how he arrived at the earlier verses, verse 1 and 2. But 3 and 4, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I have a summer experience with heat. I'm sure you all have one too. Mine might be a little unique because it involves an outhouse. No snickering. Esther, do you know what an outhouse is? Oh, you do? Oh, shouldn't have asked her. Esther knows everything. Way to go, Esther. Anyway, (laughs) I was growing up mostly in the 70s, you know, born in 61. So in the 70s, so I'm coming into my my teenage and adolescent and all that stuff. So working at the ranch, and we raised a lot of cattle, worked cattle. And in the summertime, it would get hot. And so this was summer. We've been working cattle. It's getting towards noon. And I, I needed to use facilities. And the facilities at the ranch at that time was an outhouse. An outhouse, kiddos, is, is a bathroom outside in a little wooden room. And I'm being generous calling it a room. It's really a box with all wooden walls, but it did have a tin roof to radiate the heat, the 110. That's not good enough. It needed to be 130 inside there, and I think it was. And then you don't have what is normally thought of as a toilet seat. Um, it's just a wooden place where you, you sit. So anyway, I'm in there, and thinking, wow. And I'm only like 12 or 13, so I should be able to handle everything. I'm just sweating profusely. And whoo, this is ridiculous. Well, this is part of being having a grandpa who lived through the depressions, the Great Depression of the 30s. You know, this was all fine and normal. I look over as I'm kind of finishing up. I'm like, why is a phone book in here? I get some people read when they're in the privy, but the phone book. Yeah, Gail knows what's coming. Then I reach for the roll of toilet paper. Not there, not there, not there. Hey, there are a lot of cracks in the doors of everybody. Hey, pass me a roll of toilet paper from, you know, some toilet paper. My granddad says, toilet paper, boy, some phone books in there. That's what that's for. I know. I wish you could see the faces of these young people over here. It is shocking. I was shocked. But anyway, what you learn, what you learn in the heat of summer when your bones are groaning, your strength is dried up, is that you take care of that kind of business before you leave home or you wait till when you go home. And I think that's what the outhouse was all about in that, in that particular era. Summer jobs in Buckeye, Arizona. Wow, what a, what a growth experience. Let's go to verse 5. David says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Finally, here it comes. After the groaning and the heat of summer, there is confession. 
and not a moment too soon to relieve the building pressure from the guilt and pain suffered in the previous verses. See that David uses the same three words from verses 1 and 2. Transgression, sin, iniquity. To show or indicate the completeness of his confession. And more importantly, the totality of the forgiveness. The second half of verse 5 states the result that came from the Lord. The quote here is, You forgave. Glorious, joyful words to any sinner. God forgives David's sin. He covers over his iniquity. He counts it not against him. And I want us all to take note of what David did not do. No offerings were made. No payments giving, given. No works of any kind. He acknowledged his sin. He confessed his transgression. And this he did in faith. Faith in his God who had brought him so very far in his life. And had already promised him so very much. Think of last week with Bryce's sermon and we looked at the Davidic covenant. Anytime our pastor says this is a pivotal passage of Scripture, man, my antenna, bring off they go. I'm making stars all on it. This is, this is important. Bales, wake up. You need to know this one. And it, it is important. How truly amazing all of this came to David by God lavishing His grace upon him. All of God. All from God, the giver. All to David, the recipient. And so it is to us as well. A quick note on David as author of Psalm 32. It's told that Martin Luther included 32 along with the 51st, 130th, and 143rd as the best of psalms. He named them Psalmi Paulinus, or something like that. My Latin, not, not so great. Here's the quote from Luther. For they all teach that the forgiveness of our sins comes without the law, and without works to the man who believes. And therefore, I call them Pauline Psalms. This was found in his writing entitled Table Talk. This was a group or an anthology of his writings from discipleship Sunday school lessons, you might call them, but he led these lessons around his kitchen table right there in the pastorate for years and years and years. And he must have been a good writer and they kept it or somebody did and they combined it because he called them his table talk lessons. And a lot of you know, I throw that out there because, you know, we had that little devotion back there that's called table talk. Now you know the origin of the name on the devotion. Anyway, he calls these Pauline Psalms an example of Paul's approval for the Davidic authorship 
is found in Romans chapter 4, where he quotes directly from Psalm 32, 1. And I am going to read it for you. Because it's such a, you just, you know, I'd be remiss not to throw this in there. And I'm in Romans 4, and I'm at verse 6. The, the tab up above is Abraham justified by faith. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, verse 7, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Isn't that great? We can make those Old Testament, New Testament tie-ins like that. Bryce has been doing that for us. All this since October, since we've been in the OT, it's I love that stuff. I get a big kick out of it. I hope you do too. All right, moving on to verse six. Therefore, he writes, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you, God, at a time when you may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, our psalmist is now invites us to the godly to pray, and especially in a time of stress. This verse is best understood in terms of what we just read in verses 3 and 4, the agonies, the hurt, the pain, the heat. The torrential rush of waters is seen as a metaphor for divine protection for the one that has prayed in confession to God. Verse 7, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. The prayer offered in verse 7 specifies three types of protection that is sought from God. That the Lord would be a hiding place. Preacher Spurgeon has a great quote there too. He says, a hiding place from sin, Satan, and sorrow in death and in judgment. Secondly, that God would provide protection. And thirdly, He would be our victorious deliverer. And all of this arriving with shouts of deliverance. Possibly possibly like those akin to the victorious warriors after battle in ancient Israel. Something David would have been very much familiar with. I'm watching my watch close because I know Gene is watching me. And this is where I'd say, cue the slide. But there are no slides. No, I'm just, I'm not testing you. I'm just saying, if I was more organized, you know, right, Christian, like others have been, this would be a great. Actually, there is a slide. Really? Oh, go. I hope it's not an outhouse. Nope, that's the slide. Oh, okay. One, two, three. I have a lot of one, two, threes in this sermon so far. Okay. Fill in the blanks, students. Okay, back to verse 7. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. It is undoubtedly familiar to all of you. 
You might recall, I'm going to take you on a little hist- another history trip. It was brought to particular fame in 1971 by the book, The Hiding Place, written by the Dutch author, Corey Ten Boom. And Ten Boom means something like of the tree. Did you know that, Joel? Isn't that interesting? I, I saw it, found that somewhere. But Corey Ten Boom. When I, by the time I saw her as a high school student, she was this little, tiny, short, little, roundish Dutch lady, snow white hair, and wore these kind of old, tiny clothes. She was born in 1892. That means she came to adulthood. Well, in her early years, she was in early adulthood, World War One, and then in a full adulthood, World War Two. Difficult time for the Dutch nation, Holland. It was, it fell to the, to the Nazis early and was invaded. And we know Hitler's devious, diabolical, diabolical, from hell plan regarding the Jews. The Ten Boom family, I didn't know this until recently. I don't remember it from the book or the movie. Um, had a history of blessing Jews. They were believers. The Ten Booms were Dutch Reformed believers. But it started, I think, with Corey's grandpa, that they prayed for Jews. They offered assistance to Jews immigrating to their country. They uh, were friendly to Jews. So Corey had grown up with that. The hiding place comes in their, their Dutch home built over the top of their watchmaker repair shop below. They went into Corey's actual room and put up a false wall. In the movie, they really show it well. They bricked up. They left a space, just so mean, not very large at all, enough to get six adults inside there. Kind of a secret passage where they pull the bricks out and they slide in there and made it look like it was bricked back up. And when the Gestapo came looking for, excuse me, Jews everywhere, everybody's house, they would be hidden into there. And so it worked for a time. And then the Tin Boom family was actually ratted out by neighbors. We don't want to be too harsh on them, do we? It was a fearful, scary time. If you lived next door to somebody who was doing something illegal in this during that regime and you thought it might lead to your children's death, I, I have no idea where I would be. I know what I hope I would be. But anyway, the Tim, Corey watched all of her family haul off to the, the Nazi death camps. Her father was old. Her mother was already gone by then. But she and her sister were sent to one where after just months there, her sister dies. And, but Corey survives. And Corey writes that over 800 Jews were saved through their hiding place in their home. And you know, they had to have heard the gospel while they were in there. And then she goes on tour eventually for Jesus, writing her book many years later, which became a movie and spoke all around the world. I imagine you can really YouTube it now, all of her, her talks. She's hard to understand. Her English was okay, but her accent, oh my gosh, it was it's pretty heavy duty. But the hiding place. The next section of the psalm, verse 8, is a conclusion to the prayer that's offered. But verse 8 does not bring a promise of deliverance, as you might expect. But it brings the promise 
of instruction and counsel. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. This is the Lord speaking. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. God responds to David, assuring him that he will teach and instruct him along life's path. It also comes with the assurance of protection with my eye upon you. How wonderful to have this promise, this assurance of intimate, godly assistance. As a young mother keeps her eye on her little newborn infant, the farmer dad keeps a watchful eye on his boy, his first time driving the tractor alone. It's done with pride, with joy, satisfaction, loving concern, and very intimately as only a loving parent can do. This also made me think of another old hymn I grew up with. Get ready, Tim. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. Remember that one? I'm reaching, I know. It's not from this, this verse. This is from a teaching of Jesus, right? He, he, the Lord cares for you. This, these sparrows that drop to the ground, He knows every one. How much more does He care for you? Even counting the hairs on your head and, and on and on. But I remember singing that one. And it made me think of, of in 8 there, I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Verse 9 Verse 9 is an admonition to not be stubborn. Boy, this talks to my raising. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. I could tell you so many stories about wild horses in my youth or anyway. Maybe I was a bad rider. Sydney, I'm sure, rancher's daughter, she had them too. Horses that could get away from me, get spooked by the... You know, a big old bull staring at him, snorting, and the horse was fine. He just stares back and was willing to go. Or you, the human, is terrified. At least I was. But then a paper sack rolls by. Sydney's shaking her head in the wind, a plastic tie. And the horse goes berserk. <laughs> and you're off to the rodeo, bucking and jumping. So anyway, animal, the rural life, farm life. Ah, anyway. <laughs> This is a verse not to be stubborn. It's truly a terrible thing, folks, when one of your good horses breaks a leg. The horse's instinct is to flee, to get away. Of course, it can't. The leg's broken. It thrashes. It struggles. Sadly, it must be put down. While we as humans know that a temporary time of of, uh, imprisonment in a caste will lead us to good health in the future. This verse is simply telling us, don't argue and please don't hesitate to bring your sin in confession and repentance to God. Oh, there was another really good Spurgeon quote, but I I couldn't find it at the last minute tuning this up because it used the word ass and I wanted to say the word ass up here so bad because we don't usually get that. But it was something like, in this verse, our psalmist is saying to you, don't be so stubborn and mulish that there's more of the ass in you coming out than, than the horse or something along those lines. Oh, well, I got it in anyway. <laughs> Stubborn resistance, folks, is not the answer. Confess 
and reap the benefits as so well expounded by David. Uh, I confess to you, my faith family, I am tempted to hide my sin and keep it buried deep inside. God's word instructs me, verse 8, and all of us to a better way. He calls me to confess in verse 5 and avoid the misery of bottled up sin inside, verses 3 and 4. He calls me to pray in 6 and 7 and then experience deliverance anew. Your mercies, O Lord, are new every morning to experience a fullness of life that only He can provide. Verse 11. Oh, cheat sheet. Price is cheat sheet. Item 5 says, explain how the passage brings us to Jesus. That's important, especially in the Old Testament. This is kind of a thought I wrote. I'm going to say it out out loud now. Have... I brought us in this talking to Jesus this morning. I pray so. I've prayed over and over that this would be so. I am seeing Jesus and His grace, His love, and His mercy all throughout this psalm. To drive home my thesis that forgiveness is God's greatest blessing, Let me take you to Luke 5. I'll just say it. (laughs) We don't have to go there. Where Jesus heals the paralytic. You know the story. Jesus is teaching in a home, a local home, and to a large crowd, inside and out, Scripture tells us, out of the home. Some men, some buddies, bring their paralyzed friend on a bed to be healed by Jesus. The stories have gotten out. What this amazing miracle man was doing. Due to the large crowd, unable to get up to the front where Jesus was, they have this ingenious idea to go up on this, I guess, stranger's house and and cut a hole in the poor guy's roof. Can you imagine the scene, you know, of the we know the roofs were mud and sticks and that kind of thing, just crumbling and falling down on the gathered crowd. Jesus Seeing all this take place as they lowered the paralytic down in front of him. Verse 20 says, When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. This caused great angst among the religious leaders. They charged him with blasphemy. For they said, Only God can forgive sin. And you know, theologically, scripturally speaking, they were right. Only God can forgive sin. And Jesus, proving for all to see just exactly who he was, next, he turns to the paralytic man and says, rise up, pick up your bed, head home. And so he did on his own two feet. I can't imagine the commotion going on at that moment. Is it not amazing? Jesus saw the man's true need. His true need, friends. Reconciliation with God the Father. And not out of any merit on behalf of the man or his friends. He heals him both spiritually and physically. 
putting the man's true, real need first. Forgiveness. Reconciliation. Redemption. Wholeness with our mighty God and Father. This psalm, I believe, draws a line straight to Jesus. It's full of His teaching and is a precursor to the life He lived while on earth. One of the books I used in um, exegeting through this psalm, it's really out of my league. It's a seminary book, and it was hard reading and splogging, but uh, the Lord got me through it. And it's written by a man named Peter Craigie and a whole bunch of other mm, highfalutin authors with PhDs and those things after the name. But I'm going to borrow a quote from him because it was just too good not to share it with you. Craigie writes, Psalm 32, It's a fundamental psalm illustrating powerfully the prerequisite of spiritual health, namely a self-conscious awareness of one's sinful life and of the necessity of acting upon that awareness in confession before God. And further, the psalm establishes that justification and forgiveness for mankind are not achieved on the basis of the law or of circumcision or of baptism, but on the basis of the divine grace which flowed in response to faith. Faith of the one who confessed and sought forgiveness, as we just read in Romans 4. This psalm is thus central to the gospel and points out the path of true happiness and joyfulness to sinners aware of their need for forgiveness. And in conclusion, verses 10 and 11, many are the sorrows of the wicked, But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This psalm, family, is God's word. It is full of gospel teaching. It is a message that we, the church, have been entrusted with and charged with telling to all the world. My prayer, my hope, my desire, my prayer is that we may be empowered by the Spirit of Jesus to faithfully carry out this commission. And I'm so happy to say to you, now let us pray.